Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Francine LaCroix, Queen Victoria Street, and she is with David Fulkerts Landau as well. Francine, just an extraordinary research piece from DFL. This really harkens back to his thoughtful pieces decades uh, ago. And I'd like to go to a piece of this right now for Francine, for you to bring up the conversation uh, with DFL. Negative interest rates, and they have a punishment to them. The aggressive implementation of a new regulatory regime and the failure to create a unified home market are eviscerating bank profitability. Needless to say, since the introduction of negative interest rates, EU banks have lost two-fifths of their market value, while U.S. banks have gained the same amount. It is inappropriate for DFL to speak of transactions of German banks, but Francine, certainly he can speak to a larger bank uh, banking system right now. How do we clear this mess, David? Well, Tom, one first needs to understand that there, uh, in, in, in modern economies, the, the intermediaries, financial intermediaries, are key to making it work. Uh, they're not just there to uh, take deposits and make loans, but they allocate credit, and they're just key. If, if, banks don't, if banks are sick, the economies don't do well. That's sort of a fundamental proposition. And once you see that, then you get worried, because then you see the European banking system compared to the U.S. is in dire straits. In all the normal metrics of return on assets, return on, on tangible equity, uh, net interest margins, European banks are a pale shadow compared to the Americans. And so it's very, very difficult for them to make money to organically raise capital, organically deal with non-performing loans, and there's a history to this, of course, in the sense that the Americans were restructured early after the crisis, Europe didn't do that. So we had, we had a lot of legacy issues in the banking system. But this is a serious problem, and, and, it, and it affects fundamental variables like productivity. Now, as I said before, uh, if you have to make loans when you're capital constrained, you stay, with the, you stay with, with, the lend, with the borrowers where you already have your money. You don't take it from him and give it to new borrowers, because then you've got to write down the old money. So, and that requires capital. So you have all kinds of, of inflexibilities in the system that develop when you, are, uh, when you are, uh, are not profitable. So profitability is important. What kind of banking system does Europe actually need? It's pretty straightforward what has to be done. We need to have a unified banking system. The, 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 only 1% of household loans come from across border. Now imagine this, we talk about single markets for 24 hours a day, yet the borrowers in Italy don't borrow from German banks. And German banks don't lend to Spanish borrowers. Uh, not because they don't want to, but because there's just so many hindrances going across borders. So the completion of the banking union and of the capital markets union is the first thing that has to get done. This is where I keep criticizing the European authorities. It's so easy to do these things, want to do these things with monetary policy, but that's a very blunt tool to steer an economy when, when you're failing to do the, the, the more elementary, but also the harder stuff, namely the completion of the single market. Very good. David Fulkers Landau, thank you so much. For our U.S. audience, and particularly our U.S. drive-time audience, there's nothing that's going to make you turn the channel like another discussion of Brexit.
But we can do that and we can make it charming and lovely and always with Anna Edwards, Chief Brexit Correspondent. Anna, help the U.S. audience here with an absolutely original phrase, an indicative vote. What is an indicative vote? (laughs) Well, good morning to you, Tom and Jonathan. We're all on a a big learning curve when it comes to Brexit. Another part of the twist and turning Brexit process for you this morning. Indicative votes. So basically, the way this goes... MPs spend today coming up with options that they see for a way forward on Brexit. They suggest those to the Speaker of the House. You remember him, John Burko, the one who shouts order, order a lot. He comes up with this list. The list goes on a piece of paper and then they all rank which options they would tolerate, which ones they would like, which ones they could hold their nose and vote for. And then after that process, next Monday, the top few get debated and and, and Parliament crafts some sort of preference out of all of that. Oh, that's wonderful, except it reads like that required summer read in seventh grade, Lord of the Flies. I mean, this is not, you know, required democracy as well. It's unusual Who controls this process or does it turn into something completely original for the home of constitutional law? It does seem as if a lot of what we're seeing in this Brexit process is being, um, I mean, being crafted creatively, shall we put it. Um, Up to now, what we've seen a lot is the government bringing motions and uh, members of the opposition tabling amendments to that. And that's been the process we've been going through. But this is something new. This is something different. The government has called this uh, something dangerous uh, with an unpredictable precedent because it does certainly open up the floodgates for other activity like this in the future. It upends the balance between the democratic institutions as the government's take on this. Those who put this forward, though, and I have to point out this is a cross-bench, a cross-party group of MPs who put this plan forward, they see this as really trying to answer the question as to, OK, we know what Parliament doesn't want, but what does Parliament really want? What can Parliament get behind? Important to note, though, this doesn't mean that this is what will come to pass. Parliament will express its wishes this way, but the executive does not have to listen to this. Theresa May and her team have been saying we can't pre-commit to implement a plan that we don't know what that is. That would not be responsible. So, Anna, I'm wondering whether actually all of this mess plays into the Prime Minister's strategy, that she gets the hardcore Brexiteers to start thinking that it's either her plan or they're not going to get anything they want. That is exactly the subject of the most recent Mogcast. If you've not heard of this, Jonathan and Tom, this is Jacob Rees-Mogg, who I'm sure you have heard of, the leader of the ERG, the sort of breakaway part of the Conservative Party, far on the right side, the Brexiteer side of the Conservative Party. He does a podcast called Mogcast. He released his this morning, and it makes that point that the choice, there's a continuum of choices, and May's deal, he says, is better than no deal at all. He said it before, and last night he said he would be tempted to hold his nose and vote for Theresa May deal if this was the best chance of getting any kind of Brexit. And so what's interesting about indicative votes is that they could paint a picture of the way forward or they could just be used to whip the ERG and other holdouts into supporting Theresa May's deal in the end. Okay, I'm lost. Anna Edwards, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it and can't say enough about her work on the green at Westminster. She has been absolutely extraordinary. What John Farrow and I love to do is to fold like six of the zeitgeist stories of the moment into one lovely story. And John, we can do that with Jennifer Bailey, vice president of Apple Pay yesterday, who got up and introduced the 
Goldman Sachs Apple titanium credit card and there in front of thousands of Apple fans, you know, the Apple idiots, was a titanium <laughs> card a and across it it said Jeffrey Curry. I'm not letting you get away with that. Did you just call the Apple fans the Apple idiots? Oh yeah, the, you know, the fanboys. <laughs> the fanboys. They're all into it. And there was David Solomon's there and there's the titanium Apple card and it says across it, commodity guru. Jeffrey Curry. Jeff Curry's with us, but Jeff Curry can also see that you've got an Apple iPhone X on your desk. I, I do, but, but Jeffrey Curry, titanium in credit. What is titanium used for? I, I prefer the precious metals over these rare earth metals, but you know, so I'm no, bullish platinum, 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 palladium, but not titanium, unfortunately. But it's but but they're like they're different from gold. I get that. What did you do with palladium and platinum? Um, they go into AutoCADs, and because of the VW problem, um, the demand for diesel cars collapsed, and the platinum goes into those, and then and the platinum goes, price goes down. The platinum price went down, and <clears throat> we buy more gasoline cars in lieu of the diesel cars, and palladium is. So as of yesterday, are you covering titanium? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. We'll Not get yet. there. John, bring so, it Jeff, it, the, the question used to be what's going on with China. Just ask a commodity strategist. Now it's which commodity do I look at to understand what is going on with well China? Well yeah, said. Walk me through it, Jeff. Well, in general, the policy in China has become much more selective. Like if you look at their how they stimulated housing this time around, they went in city by city, credit worthy by credit worthy. And so you end up with these very idiosyncratic stories. Now, in terms of thinking about the current environment, the one thing we've learned is they won't step aside and let the economy collapse, nor are they going to turbocharge it. So really what it does, it creates a relatively benign outlook. Like our outlook for steel demand in China this year is flat year over year. I think that's really the, the, the core outlook going forward. But their reluctance not to step aside, has that also made it more difficult over time to boost the economy when they need to? No, when 2015 and 16, they did it in large scale, and they did it again back in, what was it, 12 and 13. It looks different this time, though, Jeff. They've been trying to stimulate the economy for a while, and there are very little signs of it actually stimulating the economy. Well, I mean, if you, you got rid of the tail risk. You know, you look at, you know, the, the underlying um, economic growth is somewhere in that 55 to 6% growth range. And they even yeah. have taken down their targets. Does Dr. Copper work anymore? I, I mean, the job's no, he, really he, important question about, you know, what do you follow for China? I mean, the regression from 2010 is not pretty. No, it's not. But, but if you look at um, what copper was primarily used to create that electrical grid system in China, and infrastructure projects are slower right now. As a result, demand is slower for copper and other base metals right now. Do you have a good handle on various industrial demands? I, I mean, I mean, we run into this in oil all the time. Supply, supply, supply. Mm -hmm. Nobody really wants to measure demand. Is it truly measurable? Well, you, you get an implied demand that I think is pretty close to it, and it's consistent with the underlying um, economic data. But I think the key here is durable demand, whether if it's houses, autos in the developed markets, or infrastructure in China is a lot lower today than it was five, 10 years ago. And that's primary reason why yeah. copper and the rest of the metals complex is lower. So Tom's brought up an interesting point about Dr. Copper. If Dr. Copper no longer has a PhD, and I cannot believe what the inversion of the yield curve is, used to tell me or is telling me now, what is the signal that I get from price? Where do I get signal from price anymore? Well, if you look at the prices across the complex, they're sitting pretty much on their equilibrium values. We got copper's a little bit stronger, 
Um, but more broadly, um, most of these prices are telling you it's kind of a mid-lean type story, consistent with the underlying fundamentals. One of my great charts, I put this out years ago, it's the old <laughs> CRY, CRB index. This yep. is ancient stuff, folks, back to the 50s. And I adjust for inflation. And the answer is cop blended commodity prices, now Jeff Curry, are back to where they were in 1990 on an inflation-adjusted basis. We haven't broken that cycle other than the one-off commodity boom. What's the house call at Goldman Sachs on breaking this deflationary cycle? Well, if, if you take the non-energy, which that CRB is primarily composed of, right. it's basing that, that um, lack of Chinese demand for CapEx commodities. The OpEx commodities, like oil, looks a lot better. So it offsets that chart and makes it um, slightly tilt up as opposed to tilt, tilting down. So What's your call on oil right now? Have you revisited that it, recently? Yeah, 70, 75. The market's really tight today. You know, we got a million barrel per day deficit. Forward curve is in backwardation. So it's a rock solid story right now. However, you got a relatively bearish story going into 2020 because of the pipe capacity. And as a result, we yeah. think this market's going to remain backwards. This is on WTI, 7075. Yep. Oh, no, Brent. On Brent. I was going to say that's a big jump yeah, yeah. from where we are now. That's, what still, that's still $8. Yeah. That's a big move. Well, from 59 to 75, I was thinking yeah, yeah, that, that yeah, was a little bit more yeah, that, that's radical. In there. But from 60, whatever yeah, I it is agree. Right Jeff, yeah, last okay. time you were with us, we talked about gold. And I think mm -hmm. a $1,400 price target mm -hmm. on gold. Are you still there? Is that what you're still looking for? Yep, definitely. Um, you know, most of the evidence coming in on central bank buying is, is there. Um, the Chinese bought in both December as well as January 10 tons. Um, you have a dovish Fed. Um, you know, the fly in the ointment right now is really what's going on with the U.S. dollar. Um, but you take the, the underlying fundamental picture and you get a stronger EM, which looks to be the case, ex-China. Um, that's the tailwind that you need to push gold up to 1400 We view it as a grind higher as opposed to a Is pop. the house view still for a weaker dollar from here? And, and what underpins that, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, the situation in Europe is probably about as bad as, as it's going to get at this point right now. Um, and if you look at the dollar against the you know, yeah. EMX China, it's it's, it's um, much weaker than what it was last year. Jeff Curry, did John Farrow and I need to be in uh, Vienna April 18, uh, 17 and April 18? Do we need to be there for the OPEC meetings? I mean, do we need to be there for all the excitement of OPEC? No, I, th I think it, the, the big question with OPEC right now is the exit strategy and when they're going to start talking about it. Our I mean, exit strategy from Vienna April 19th. Yes. Tom's <laughs> just trying to arrange... A vacation for the Bloomberg <laughs> surveillance team. Places to go than Vienna. I don't think it's going to be that exciting this April. You're killing me, Kurt. This is his last time. <laughs> hey, Jeff, it's great to catch up with you. I know you've got sure. to run to TV, so thank you very yeah, much for dropping by. Thank you. And catching always. Up with us. Come back when you can say Vienna looks lovely in April. I, I like Vienna. I've never been. Just, I've for, never just been. for a night. Just for I a night. Jeff went once in 06. He's killing us. So when Jeff goes He's to Vienna, us. when Jeff goes to Vienna. Time to start. Anthony about from Sparta worried. just emailed in and said, You'll be lucky you'll see Vienna, Virginia. Christina Hooper here uh, with Invesco, their chief global market strategist, to help us reset this morning. Let's look back first. How did you reset on December 26th of last year? Well, we recognized at that point that the Fed may actually 
be feeling uh, more flexible and may be beginning to pivot. Um, but having said that, it really wasn't confirmed for a while. <clears throat> and sure. so I don't think that many adjusted portfolios because of that okay. slight indication. But on the sell side, they're writing a 20-page report December 23rd, uh, they're, they're, rather December 31. They're doing it through three weeks of December. You got to rip that up, throw it in the wastebasket. What's your new 20-page report when you speak to Invesco shareholders? Well, clearly, it's a much more accommodative environment for risk assets because of the Fed pivot. But the caveat is if economic data holds up, because that's really the concern. Because this pivot was so abrupt, was so dramatic, what it does is raise very significant concerns about the state of the global economy. So we're going to need to follow the data closely before we really have a solid picture of what is to come this year. Um, my expectation is that we will see the global economic data hold up, that China stimulus, for example, will power the Chinese economy and enable them to hit that six to hit six and a half percent target is that your fairly call? easily. That is my call. Your call is a six percent plus China GDP. That is correct. That is lonely, John. Well, that's China's call as well. And typically what China's call is, is what growth will be. That would be fair. <laughs> yeah. the thing it's not that as I, lonely as you'd expect, the, the right? Thing that, the thing that I find really hard to reconcile right now is why the rates market would begin cutting in, pricing at a rate cut at the same time that riskier parts of credit continue to rally. Um, a question I asked this morning is an environment where the Fed needs to cut is not typically an environment where risk performs well. So I think something's got to give. Either the rate cut doesn't happen or the credit market needs to adjust and adjust quickly. Um, which one is it, Christina? From what you're saying, you just don't think the rate cut happens. I don't expect a rate cut to happen. I know that the probability is going up if we look at Fed funds futures, but we have seen a decoupling between expectations and Fed policy. So I wouldn't be surprised if that continues. I just believe that the economic data will hold up uh, fairly well. I'm not telling you we're gonna see very strong global growth, but it's not gonna be as bad as many expect. As the treasury market decoupled from the domestic growth story, uh, it has to a certain extent, but I think that that is to be expected given just the abrupt change that the Fed made. That set off all kinds of alarm bells and has made many investors wonder what's going on. So we have to wait for the data to appear to really confirm views. So when does that actually come? Because there was an immense amount of faith that China would be able to stabilize the situation, that we would see it stabilize as the year progresses. Are you seeing any of that in the data at the moment? Uh, not particularly, although it's not terrible. I think what we're likely to see is improvement as we move through the spring into the summer. What gives you the confidence? Because I have a lot of confidence that the Chinese government, when they want something to happen, they make it happen. Um, they have a lot of stimulus that they are throwing at this, fiscal, monetary, administrative, and I believe it will ultimately um, result in growth. I want to point out that within what we saw the last number of days, John, that we heard the same thing in a different way from Dr. Shepardson of Pantheon oh, absolutely. earlier. That, that within the, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the Bloomberg screen and it's not giving me Christina Hooper's story right now, but she's looking out to a restorative process. I'm catching up with Wackham Fowles of PIMCO a little bit later Very in the morning. Good. And their cyclical outlook came out a couple of days ago, flatlining at the new 
neutral. And ultimately their take is what I think many people's take is now, that the swing factor in the global economy is China and what happens with China later this year. They also share that faith that we will have a little bit of stability there. We will have a bottoming out process that begins as the year progresses. Christina, some people don't buy into that. How do you convince them when you speak to clients? Well, one argument is to just point to the U.S.-China trade wars. It behooves China to stimulate its economy so that it can last through the U.S.-China trade wars until the U.S. capitulates. That is an incredibly powerful incentive uh, to throw stimulus at the economy right now. So if I believe that, the next question is how to express that in financial markets. If I believe that China is going to stabilize, then I'm looking at the markets right now and thinking, well, actually, European equities are already having a decent year. Chinese equities are already having a decent year, likewise with credit markets and fixed income in Asia and Europe. Where do I get value? Where should I push that view through that China is going to stabilize and things will be okay? Is it on the short side in rates? Is it long in equities somewhere? What should I be doing? I see opportunities in equities, and we have a significant amount of volatility, so there's an opportunity to buy on the dips, both in the U.S. and emerging markets equities, although I'd focus on Asia EM. Interesting. Christina Hooper, great to catch up with you. Invesco Chief Global Market Strategist on a really interesting morning, Tom, and an interesting week of price action, too. Well, the, the, the interesting week of price action, but what's interesting about it is where we are and where the mood is. I mean, right now, John, if we created a dot plot today and with a market perception of it, it, it would be an original dot plot. It would be all over the place. It would include cuts. Let's be clear about that. Well, yeah, if it, I mean, if I mean, the, the market could, could have its own dot right now on the FOMC dot plot, you know where it would I be. I mean, Christina, don't move. I know you got to get, get up and leave, but, but Christina, I think this is critical And that I went back and looked at two years of dots, which you could do on the Bloomberg, and the slopes have all changed. I mean, the view out for the fancy people at the Fed is radically different than it was two years ago, right? Absolutely. But I think that has a lot to do with the fact that this is a policy prescription, essentially created in a vacuum by each individual member of the FOMC. So it doesn't reflect groupthink and the kind of consensus that goes along with actual Yeah, but our decisions. listeners don't have the luxury of groupthink and consensus. They're just scared stiff and they miss the rebound January, February, and so. What are you doing to allocate right now for those that didn't enjoy up 11%? Well, we're encouraging them to take a long-term view, which means that right now, uh, central bank policy is relatively accommodative. Although I would say that one area I do worry about, and we've already seen a run-up there, is European equities. Just because one thing that not many people is talk- are talking about is that Mario Draghi leaves this position at the end of October. So he's essentially yeah. a lame duck. And so I, no matter what kind of stimulus we see coming out of the ECB, we may not see markets okay. react to it. Christina Hooper, thank you so much with Invesco. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.